electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Last Call, a Sean Fain exclusive, the UAW president, joining us on his upcoming meeting with President Biden, his plans to unionize more automakers, and much more. Bob Iger speaking out, the comments to CNBC that have Disney investors buzzing with the stock on the move. Media, mayhem, the industry's outlook somehow getting even more cloudy. The book Ray Dalio does not want you to read, but the author of the book on the billionaire hedge fund titan and Bridgewater Associates founder is here. And the five-year anniversary of one of America's worst ever wildfires, some of its victims still have not been compensated for their loss. We'll try to dig for answers. All that and much more across this action-packed hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Oh, hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. A big hour ahead. But first up on last call, it was another big day for your money. Yes, the Dow did break its seven-day winning streak. But, I mean, the Dow, right? The S&P 500 and NASDAQ much more watched and invested in. And they did something that they have not done exactly two years to the date ago. The S&P 500 hit its eighth positive day in a row. The NASDAQ went one better, posting its ninth winning day in a row. That has not happened, my friends, in two years. All right, that is not all. Wall Street's so-called fear gauge, the VIX volatility index, logging its eighth straight drop. And that is its longest streak of daily declines in eight years. It means that market nervousness, despite everything going on, is going down. So if you feel like you missed out on this big run, don't worry. And remember this, markets are long-term. So let's lead it off tonight with a little stock market lesson. And it comes courtesy of our friend and colleague, Bob Pisani. Because did you try to time or trade this rally? Well, if so, we certainly hope it went well and you made money. But Bob has some wise words about the power of staying invested and not trying to time markets. We we did what any good friends do and we ripped off Bob's content. Listen to this. The S&P 500 has had a good year. You know that. It's up about 14%. But this is random but interesting. Despite those gains, there have only been 11 more up days than down days for the S&P this year. And the only two days where the S&P 500 popped over 2% were back on January 6th and April 27th. And if you miss those two days, your returns this year are a lot less. And this long-term lesson from Bob really highlights why you need to stay invested in this market. Listen to this. If you'd invested 10 grand into the S&P 500 all the way back in 1970 and never touched it, you would have $138,908. It's oddly specific, but that's the number according to Dimensional Advisors. If you missed just the single best performing day of all that 52 years, you'd have 124,491. You missed the five days, the best five, you'd have 90,000. And it gets worse. If you missed the best 15 days for the index over 52 years, your total was cut in half to 52,246. And 
If you tried to time the market and failed and you missed the best 25 days over 52 years, that $10,000 would be worth $32,763. Now, there's about 250 trading days in any given year. So over 52 years, that's about 13,000 trading days. So put this another way. If you pulled money out of the S&P 500 and missed just 0.1% of all trading days over 52 years, 25 days, your market return would be 73% less than if you never touched the money. If that is not some valuable advice from Bob and Dimensional Funds, I got nothing for you. I don't know what is. All right, let's talk about that and more. And what's best to do with your money now? Let's bring in SoFi, head of investment strategy. Liz Young, you know, Liz, uh, I I knew that if you missed some of the better days, your returns were down. But the fact that if you missed 25 days out of 52 years, you left 73% on the table. I mean, that blows even my mind. Powerful, powerful stats. And it does always remind us that emotions are really, really important to keep in check, particularly when you look at some of the worst days, which is when emotions run on high. If you add to that stat, I don't have exact data for this, but if you add to that stat, something along the lines of most of the best days come within 30 days of the worst days. Mm. And when you have those big drawdowns, those big one-day drawdowns, we know that investors get really skittish and are more apt to pull their money out. So all the more reminder to sit tight, wait it out, especially if you're not sure what's to come. And I think that's where we are right now. We're really unsure of what's to come, and we're in this weird purgatory between possibly the end of a hiking cycle and probably long before the beginning of a cutting cycle. But apparently, investors love purgatory. It's like something out of Dante's Inferno, (laughs) the happy ending tale, right? Because the market's up nine days in a row. And you heard, Liz, the Nasdaq has not done that in two years. I mean, to what do we owe this sudden streak of good fortune? Well, one thing I want us to be careful of is that you're right, the NASDAQ hasn't done that in two years, but let's remember what happened exactly after that in the NASDAQ and in the S&P. We had a pretty sharp drawdown that began and then went on unrelenting through a lot of 2022. So we have to be careful not to celebrate things like that too much. I think markets do overshoot on the upside and the downside, but there are a couple of forces at play here. We had another Fed pause, so the Fed has now been on pause since July, which I think led a lot of investors to to believe that they will stay on pause and that they're probably done with this hiking cycle. We had some weak economic data, particularly in the labor market, that further reinforced the idea that they may be done. And we have yields that came down really, really fast. We went from above 5% in the 10-year down to the 450s pretty quickly. And we're once again back to a relationship where stock prices and yields are moving in opposite directions, which is the way it should work. So the market, I think, has had a few tailwinds behind it, not to mention coming off of almost a three-month decline. I think a lot of this is some relief as well. You know, I do worry, and, and kind of not to counter the point I made at the top of the show, Liz, about always staying invested, but I do worry, you know, people out there, they watch CNBC, it's nine days in a row. You know, all these tech stocks, the Magnificent Seven, you talk about them on halftime all the time, they're all soaring. And I just want to make sure what your advice is to those people that sort of do try to time the market, because a lot of times people buy high and sell low. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, some of the things you can look at when you're thinking about what exactly to put your money into. First of all, this is a period where you do want to be choosy. I don't think that this is a time where you want to broadly just throw money into an index because there's still so much uncertainty and all the sector returns are acting very, very differently. That's what you hear about when people say things like the dispersion is very wide. So the best performing sector, very different from the worst performing sector. And what we've seen over the last week or so is surges in measures of breath, and that's breath with a D in it. So the advanced decline numbers, mm-hmm. you've seen surges there where more stocks were participating, but that has come back down. And now we're seeing more concentrated leadership still in those mega cap tech names. That yeah. story can probably not persist forever. It's not a durable story that can take the entire market forward onto in, onto, into eternity, excuse me. So yeah. I think it's something that you have to be careful with not to jump on that bandwagon just because the story has returned again. Well said. Good advice. Sage advice, as we said. Liz Young, so far. Thank you, Liz. See you soon. Thank you. All right, up next, a last call exclusive you will not want to miss. UAW President Sean Fain sitting down for an interview on the union's plans to expand if President Biden will win its endorsement and much more. Later on, the book on hedge fund giant Ray Dalio. That is the buzz of Wall Street. The author, Rob Copeland, is here. We have got a lot more to do. We're back right after this. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package-less and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Last Call. President Biden and UAW President Sean Fain will reunite tomorrow in Illinois. They're going to celebrate the union's tentative labor deals with the big three automakers. And with us tonight, ahead of that, is the union president himself, and that is Sean Fain. Uh, Sean, thank you very much for joining us uh, again on, on Last Call. As you know, I spent a, a full day in front of the, uh, the Michigan Assembly plant there in, in Wayne, met some fantastic people. Uh, so congratulations, by the way, on your success for them and, and, and your team. Thank you. That's uh, what happens when uh, unified membership stands together and, uh, you know, when the unified working class stands together. So we're uh, happy with the results so far and uh, got a lot of work ahead of us, though. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a gentleman named Sean Fain, who said uh, the next contract negotiation in four years will not be with the big three. It will be with the big five or six. Who do you have in your sights? Tesla? Uh, you know, we have a lot of companies in our sites right now, and, uh, you know, that's what happens when you bargain great agreements and uh, people see the difference um, when you set the standard. Uh, people want to be a part of that, and we've had literally thousands of non-union workers all over the country reaching out to us throughout this process. So um, we're uh, working with our organizing department right now, and uh, we're planning next steps, and um, we're going to organize like hell. Um, so 
you know, we uh, obviously saw uh, uh, just as soon as we got the three tentative agreements, within a week, Toyota uh, uh, gave their workers a a 9% pay increase, and they reduced their progression to full pay from eight years to four years. We're calling that the UAW bump. Um, <laughs> that was done as a direct result of the contracts we bargained. And um, when those members become, uh, when those workers become members of the UAW, um, you know they'll get the full uh, benefit of being being a union member and uh, get full wages and full benefits that they deserve. When, not if. When you bet. Can you take us into your thinking on how do, how do you and your team strategize? you got BMW, Mercedes, Honda, Toyota, obviously Tesla, Hyundai, Kia, all making cars in the United States. How do you decide? What kind of uh, metrics do you look at to say this is going to be the next company and manufacturer that, that we try to unionize? Well, I think you just have to look at conditions everywhere and then, and then workers, you know, the uh... Obviously, you know, uh, when we go on organizing campaigns, the companies, you know, they violate the law. They hire, you know, uh, union busters and all kinds of, uh, you know, they spend billions of dollars on firms to come in and, and try to, uh, uh, you know, um, demoralize workers from wanting a union. There's a reason they do that, because they know the benefit of that. And, you know, this is all about power and control. It's no different than what we've witnessed the last 40 years in this country. Uh, you know, the... the uh, corporate class, the billionaire class have walked away with everything. I mean, 26 billionaires have as much wealth as half of humanity. We're saying that's a crisis in this country, in this world, and it's time we turn it upside down. And I think that's why, you know, our campaign has resonated so much, not just with union members, but with the working class in general, um, because workers are fed up with being left behind and scraping to get by paycheck to paycheck. And uh, unions are the great equalizer in that. And, uh, you know, when, when workers become members of unions, uh, it gives them power. And uh, that's, what we, that's what the focus needs to be on in this country is harnessing that working class power. We all come together and uh, we take control of our labor. We take control of our work. With, without our labor, union or non-union, nothing in this country moves. Nothing in this world moves. Yeah. And so we, we've got we've to turn that around. It would seem you know, during the strike, obviously, there were some shutdowns. And my guess is that there may have been some market share losses among the big three or the Detroit three, whatever you want to say. It got pretty contentious at times. I think you used one point, used the word enemy while talking about them, Sean. But I, I'm guessing you and your members want these companies for GM Stellantis to succeed. Do you, do you, are you confident they can come back from the five weeks of the strike? Well, I can tell you 12 billion reasons why uh, Stellantis will be okay. I can give you 10 billion reasons why GM will be okay and, and, and billions more why Ford will be okay. Uh, they all made billions of dollars in profits in the first six months alone. Uh, they've made a quarter trillion dollars in the last decade. Um, you know, and that's, all that is to me, it's fear-mongering. Um, you know, we have the, some of the pundits talking now about, uh, you know, that we bargain these contracts is going to drive the price of vehicles up and, make them not affordable, but, you know, that's, that's just a complete lie. Um, with what we bargained, these companies could not raise the price of vehicles one penny, and they'll still make billions. And if you look at the last four years, people forget this. Over the last four years, the price of vehicles went up 30 to 35 percent. It wasn't due to our wages. Our wages went backwards over that time. Uh, it's, it's down the two words, corporate greed and get price gouging on the consumers. And uh, so that's what's got to change in this. If the price of vehicles go up, 
It's nothing more, in my opinion, than corporate greed and price gouging. I, I think, Sean, to be fair, though, corporate greed is an, is a, is an easy boogeyman, I believe. I mean, macroinflation well, has so. macro got to play a role in all of that. It's hitting, it's hitting everything, whether it's a car, whether it's eggs, whether it's housing. Inflation has just crushed middle-class wages. I, I believe fear tactics are the boogeyman. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's what the, the corporate class and the billionaire class has always imposed on working-class people. They want to make workers afraid of fighting for their fair share, or standing up for their fair share. And uh, I don't believe it for a minute. We've ran the numbers, and as I said before, they could double our wages and, and still not raise the price of vehicles, and they would still make billions in profits. And that's just facts. Well, you know, I don't know if, if, if you guys pay attention, but I've been out there all by my kind of lonely little self out there, Sean, talking about electric cars. I want to be clear. I, I've bought one before. I've owned one. I've driven many. The technology is amazing. They're fast and fun to drive. But I also spend a lot of time in the Midwest where you are. I drive across mm -hmm. the country. And I, and I just realize that there's things that maybe it's not quite built for. What is the UAW's real stance on EVs, which have far fewer parts, need fewer repairs, and particularly in the powertrain, which I think you would, is, is to call it the engine of the UAW, is probably an intended pun that's accurate. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, look, the UAW has always stood for environmental, uh, uh, you know, a good environment, a healthy environment, a green economy. I mean, uh, you know, going back to the Ruther days, we've always been about the environment. Um, you know, as Ruther said back in his time, what good's another dollar an hour in wages or another week's vacation if the, if the place you go to visit, you can't swim in the lake, if you can't breathe the air? Um, you know, so, you know, there's still work to be done, you know, with the infrastructure and things with the battery EV work. I mean, obviously, it's moving fast, but, uh, you know, uh, we support that. We, we just have to make sure that it's a just, this transition is a just transition so that no matter what way this goes, that, uh, you know, workers don't get left behind. And that's what, that's yeah. what our fight's been in this. And, uh, Securing that work and securing it at, at good labor standards, not at poverty wages. Well, you know, and again, and Bill Ford, by the way, I don't know if you saw this quote, Sean. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of Bill Ford. Uh, Bill Ford told The New York Times he basically compared electric cars to vaccines and sort of said that, you know, that a lot of the red states or maybe where you are, Michigan is blue. I understand it. But you get the you get the macro point, Sean, are kind of being forced on the American people, California mandating it, New Jersey, where I live, sort of mandated by 2035, when it's great if you live in a wealthy urban area where you can have it as your second or third car, but if you're there living in, you know, Grayling or Gaylord, Michigan, and you're driving up to the UP to see your family or go fishing, it may not work. How do you, how do you view that quote from Bill Ford comparing the government mandates on EVs? Do you, do you feel like that's accurate? Um, obviously, you know, uh Let's just be real about this. <laughs> Again, I go back to corporate greed, the corporate class, the oil companies, uh, you know, the billions and billions in oil profits and, and price gouging there. I mean, I'm driving down the street one day and the uh, price of gas was 2.98. The next day it's 3.50. Um, nothing happened, but it went up 50 cents overnight. Um, you know, so I think there are a lot more powers at play here than just um, those things. But obviously we're not going to switch to that type of economy unless there's government action taken. Uh, you look everywhere else in the world, they're, they're making that shift. Uh, they've made it already, and they're moving a lot faster than we are. We're far behind on this. Um, you know, uh, but again, we've we got to get we, the infrastructure we drive, in place, and we we'll see how strong, that goes. We drive differently than the rest of the world, right? I mean, I, you, you, know, you go to Europe, and they have trains, and, they, and gas is $9 a gallon, so they commute differently. 
China has 38% of its new cars being electric. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are cheap. I mean, probably cheaply made. Um, you're going to meet with the president tomorrow in Belvedere, Illinois. Are you going to express to him some concern that five years from now, the U.S. market, it won't be Ford or GM or Stellantis or whatever doing well in EVs. It's going to be Neo or some other Chinese company selling Americans $14,000 electric cars. Should we ban them? No, we've we've talked. Uh, you know, I've talked. We've talked quite extensively with uh, not just the White House, but other you know leaders and uh, you know uh, political leaders and uh, and groups. And um, you know, uh, again, we're not going to run away from technology advances. We, I, I'm an electrician by trade. I've seen technology advance in my 29 years uh, at, at, at Stellantis alone. Um, uh, so there's always advances. Technology is always changing. We're not going to run from it. Um, but you know, we want to make things. We want to make sure it's done in the proper way. We want to protect jobs and, uh, and, and have them be good paying jobs. And, um, you know, we'll see where it goes, but, uh, there's a lot of things to still work out on this. And, um, I'm confident we'll do that. Should, should we, but I'll be more direct. Should we ban Sean, the import of cars that are made, especially in conditions where we don't know the labor conditions? Is it, you know, just ultra cheap, <coughs> low cost in some cases, potentially yeah, I mean, I, forced yeah, labor? I, I think should those cars have, be allowed I, in the United States? I think we have to have policies in place. I mean, human rights violations, all, you know, obviously other countries have a lot different laws than we have. Um, so obviously we need to take into consideration all those things, you know, trade laws that are very unfairly balanced um, toward other nations. And uh, we need to make sure that uh, we're not left behind in that. And um, so that's obviously, like I said, there's a lot of work we need to do in those areas. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm confident we're going to get there. Sean Fain, president of the UAW, coming off a, a, a big win. Sean, we do appreciate you rejoining us here on CNBC. And last call, and I really did enjoy my time all day out there uh, meeting some of the good women and men uh, of the UAW. Thank you for all you do. Yeah, we, yeah. we appreciate your time, taking your time to go out there and visit them, and uh, appreciate you for having us on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Sean, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. Is some of the magic finally coming back to Disney? Bob Iger speaking out to Julia Borston. She'll be with us about what he said next. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. All right, welcome back. Disney reporting its fourth quarter earnings, fiscal fourth quarter earnings after the closing bell today. Julia Borston sat down with Bob Iger exclusively earlier. Julia, how did Disney do? Well, Brian, Disney shares rising on a big earnings beat and far better than expected streaming numbers. The company adding a much better than anticipated 7 million streaming subscribers while narrowing losses for that division by 74%. Meanwhile, ESPN, broken out for the first time, showed a 15% increase in operating income as Iger works on the future of that division. We obviously are um, planning to take ESPN out on a direct-to-consumer basis. We feel great about that. We believe we have an opportunity to strengthen that hand even more by bringing in one or two strategic partners that can add either marketing support, technology support, um, or 
possibly content support. Iger also telling me the company plans to launch a beta version of its combined Hulu and Disney Plus app next month. The company also guiding to growing free cash flow in fiscal 2024 significantly higher than this year, saying that they will approach levels last seen pre-pandemic. All of this as Disney expanded its cost-cutting targets by $2 billion to $7.5 billion. Now, with striking actors picketing outside Disney today and growing concerns about the impact of next summer's next year's summer releases from the actor strike, I asked Iger if we're close to a resolution. I have the utmost respect for actors. They're an incredibly important part of the Walt Disney Company for obvious reasons. And we've been hard at work, we, the, the companies involved in, in this business, as well as SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, in trying to figure out a way to get them back to work. And I can only say that I'm optimistic uh, that we'll figure that out relatively soon. Iger also struck a bullish note when it came to consumer spending at the theme parks and also the advertising business. You can find my whole interview with Bob Iger on CNBC.com. Brian? Great stuff. As always, Julia, thank you very much. All right, Disney aside, it has been an historically brutal week for a lot of big media stocks and their beleaguered investors. I mean, Dish Network tanked at the beginning of the week. People worrying about its massive debt load. Warner Brothers Discovery swan-dived. Driven down by a weak ad market, its quarterly numbers. You got Paramount tumbling in solidarity with WBD, Warner Brothers Discovery. Take a look at this, and maybe this could also be a bit of an RBI. The once struggling New York Times has come up, and Paramount has come down. And so Paramount and the New York Times effectively have the exact same market cap. Keep in mind, Paramount's market cap not that long ago was over 20 Billion. Joining us now, Semaphore, co-founder and editor-in-chief Ben Smith, and Mountain, President and CEO Mark Douglas. Mark, if you, uh, and I'm asking for a friend, will there be paid cable TV in like six weeks? Um, well, cable TV, say I think yes, if you look Just at- say yes, there yeah. will be, Brian, and everybody's going to be fine. Well, six weeks, yes, but I think six years, no. <laughs> so that, that, that's the answer to that question. That's why I went to law school. People say, why'd you go to law school? Career insurance. There's always somebody I can sue. Um, Yeah, I mean, you're going to make the same amount, maybe more, because more people were watching, though. So so you have nothing to worry about. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. But Ben, on a serious note, I mean, listen, we're watching this. I understand we're in the media, so you watch your own industry more closely. When I see Warner Brothers Discovery dropping 20% in a day, Dish Network down almost 40% in a day, and nobody's making any money on streaming. We, we, took, we took a model that was incredibly profitable, and, then, and now we're turning into a model that nobody can figure out how to make money on. Yeah, we're going yeah. back to the future. Ben, so, go ahead. Ben. Yeah, and I think, you know, you know for years people said that cable and the, the linear business were melting in the shade. You know, that you knew it was declining, but and now we're really seeing it kind of melt in the sun. And the, and the reasons, you know, the reasons that stock dropped, I mean, they, you know, the company lost $417 million despite this incredible windfall around Barbie. And I think, you know, you I think investors looked at that and thought, wow, like if that's, this was in some ways an incredible quarter for them and they lost money and they have these huge sort of problems over the next, that they're projecting over the next year. And I think it just... I think the, the sort of the market is starting to see in a way what the newspaper business wants an incredible cash, you know, cash machine of a business 
you know, we hit a wall in the early 2000s that we you know around digital and people kind of projecting that that would come to linear television for a long time. And I think you're not seeing yeah, it. Well, and the, the, the ad market of newspapers, which is why newspapers used to be probably a little more down the middle because they just sold ads. They didn't care who their audience was as long as they had an audience. They got Googled. Mark, I feel like, did we get Netflixed? Because, you know, Netflix was the first to come out with this. Everybody's kind of following suit, but Netflix is not exactly, they make a lot of revenue. They don't make a lot of profit. Where does this ultimately go? How, what does this look like in five years? Well, it's still growing. And when you're in the growth industry, the overall streaming market is still growing, meaning consumers are moving out of this kind of older cable model into streaming and it's ultimately going to consolidate so instead of having like cable companies you're going to have a bunch of kind of aggregators and i actually think it's very smart that disney is you know going through and acquiring their stake in hulu because i think hulu is one of the best positioned aggregators they have sports they have live tell they have live sports live news you know, tons of live television, plus a lot of streaming content. And so, you know, there, it's a period of investment and you're not going to make money during that period of investment, but you're going to reap those rewards if you're one of those top three players. And that's, I think, is what's going to happen. And today was a move by Disney to make sure that they're going to be one of those top three players by focusing on growth and buying one of those key entry points. We have streaming. very little time, Ben, but to Mark's point, if he is correct, and he probably is, are they going to charge 75 bucks a month each? And we're just going to go back to paying cable-like rates. I mean, I, I mean, we are, we are going to wish that we could pay cable-like rates. I mean, because because yeah. you're going to be you're going to, there are going to be three big bundles. Each will have some sporting event that you have to watch. You're going to want to watch the Olympics. You're going to want to watch the NFL. You want to pay three times what you were paying in the glory days. I mean, I one the one of the bright spots in Iger's presentation was how excited they are to upsell you Hulu. So get ready. That's it. Mark yeah. and Ben, a good discussion about an industry that is changing, I mean, right quick. Guys, thank you very much. All right, still thank ahead, you, the book, Ray Dalio, does not want you to read the author of a dive into the world's biggest hedge fund, Bridgewater. Well, join us live on set next. All right, welcome back. For many people on Wall Street, Ray Dalio is a legend. The billionaire built Bridgewater Associates from his apartment in Manhattan into a $130 billion behemoth. It is the world's largest hedge fund. Dalio has also signed the Giving Pledge, which encourages wealthy people to give away much of their money to charitable causes. But a big new book out this week tells of a different side to the Bridgewater success story. It is called The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. Doing hundreds of interviews with people inside and around the firm, author Rob Copeland, who has also covered Ray Dalio and Bridgewater for years at The Journal and The New York Times, gives a glimpse into what some have said is a very different picture inside the firm, one that can be described by many probably as dystopian. Now, Ray Dalio himself did give the book a review of sorts. In a LinkedIn post, he said, quote, it's another one of those sensational and inaccurate tabloid books written to sell books to people who like to gossip. Rob Copeland is with us now, author of The Fund, finance reporter for The New York Times. His first TV interview since the book was released. It is a big book. I know it's uh, probably already moving up the charts, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, I'm, Mike, what do you mean, first off, what do you mean by the un unraveling? Ray Dalio is super rich. The firm is super rich. What's the unraveling part of the story? 
It's that there are two Ray Dalios. There's the Ray Dalio you've seen on TV and on LinkedIn and in TED Talks. And there is another Ray Dalio that exists behind the scenes. And it's a very, very different story. Okay. Now, and I know I'm just speculating wildly that Ray Dalio did not want you to write this book. You guys have been kind of feuding for a couple of years, haven't you? Well, he would like to make it seem like it's me versus him. But this is about him. This is about Bridgewater. This is about what he's really like and what his so-called principles are like. Okay, so let's dive into that a little bit because you did a lot of interviews. And by the way, I know people who've worked there. I know Mm. I may or may not know some people who currently work there. I've been doing this for 25 years. Mm. Um, And the people who love Ray love Ray. He's made a lot of people really, really wealthy. Um, he would argue the people you talk to, I'm sure, I, don't, I haven't talked to him, would say you just got the, the angry, disgruntled people, and that's, that's, who, that's who the book is targeting. Is that true? It couldn't be further from the truth. Even the people at Bridgewater now that I've spoken to have very mixed feelings about, about Ray. The, the purpose of this book is to show that there's, there are two versions of Ray, so it's, it's more just about telling the full version of the truth. You know, mm-hmm. one of his principles is people have to be willing to humiliate themselves to get at the truth. So that's that's what I would say about that. Okay, and 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 one there's a bunch of great stuff in the book. I haven't quite finished it. I'm a little more than halfway through, so I'm not gonna. I don't know the ending, so I can't ruin it. Um, People got baseball cards, effectively listing their almost grading them and listing their weaknesses. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Does that still occur, or was that from the 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 Bridgewater of of years ago? There are still a ratings apparatus at Bridgewater. It's changed a little bit since he's, since he's left. But the key is that the way he's described it hasn't changed at all. He continues to flog this, this utopia of Bridgewater that I'm not sure anyone ever truly believed except for Ray himself. And Ray has stepped away as active CEO. And there's four different people running the firm now. I want to make, I want to make that clear as well. The one thing that, that Bill Ackman, I think, said eight years ago in a, in a panel, uh, Jim Grant of Grant's newsletter, very respected. Um, another aspect of this book is not even just about Ray. It's about the firm and the fund itself. And it, it seems that nobody truly understands or is able to articulate how exactly they make money. It's remarkable, isn't it, that he's the world's largest hedge fund manager and you can't find a clip of him saying anything um, that really makes too much sense about investing. This was the hardest nut to crack for the book was what does Bridgewater actually do with its money? And the reveal for me was it's not nearly as much of a systematized approach um, as Ray and Bridgewater have made it seem. You know, so what, what, what is, so for our audience that doesn't know, if they're not Wall Street pros, Bridgewater is $130 billion. Mm. So they've been able to get $130 billion of money or make it from investors around the world. So somebody must think they're doing something pretty well. Look, let's give Ray some credit here. This man is a master marketer. For decades, he has pitched himself in, at, better than anyone else on, on Wall Street. There's probably no one on Wall Street who could still manage $130 billion with their investment track record of the last decade or so. Were you able to crack the nut of exactly how they make? Can you explain in like two sentences how does Bridgewater exactly make money? Because I can tell you how 99% of the hedge funds I know make money, or at least their most fundamental strategy. In two sentences, I would say uh, Ray Dalio says Bridgewater's investments are based on rules. The most important rule is that uh, Ray Dalio makes the rules. Even now? Well, he's not there full time now, but I would ask yourself, who has the real power here? Is it the person that says CEO or the person who owns the most equity? Or is it the one person who can go on television at any moment? All he has to do is look into the camera and say, I don't have confidence in the people running Bridgewater and that firm 
has a very tough road ahead of them. Yeah, listen, it, and by the way, again, I'll be fair to Ray Dalio. Hedge funds are a tough world. If you make it, you can become wildly wealthy, mm. but they can also be kind of cruel. I think Billions, the show, which my mm. colleague Andrew Osorkin's involved in, that's r- roughly based on Stevie A. Cohn, but also probably a little Bridgewater thrown in there. There's people who are crying in the book. At one mm. point, you you mentioned, um, and this is a little bit vulgar, a little, there was some pee on the floor in the mm. bathroom. So I don't, am I allowed to even say this? And that somebody was hired or positioned to sort of report on who was missing, missing the shot, as we would say. So this is the core part of the principles is there's no problems that are too small to be diagnosed and probed. And even so far, what's wrong with a clean floor, Rob? Well, I I like a clean floor. I don't know what you're doing in the bathroom, but I like a clean floor (laughs) below me. But the Ray Dalio goes into the bathroom. He sees some some uh, yellow stuff, yellow stuff, let's say, on the floor. And this sparks an investigation, a case study. But literally like James Comey, the former FBI director, worked at Bridgewater before the FBI, correct? Correct. And so like he would put, according to your book, again, again, according to your book, Mm. put like people on like check out who's missing their shot in the bathroom. True. While running a hundred billion dollar hedge fund. Well, Jim Comey wasn't running the hedge no, fund. No, he no, was no, Running no. this colossal security apparatus. Is it also true? And I'm listen. I believe what you wrote in the book. Sure. Um, that he has a penchant for chewing scotch tape. That is that is true. A lot of people are asking me about this very specific anecdote. I well, will it's, say, it's when I read it, I was like, scotch tape is gross. I mean, it tastes like gin, which is also gross. If you read this whole, I'm book, told. Well, that's true. I've never chewed scotch tape. If you read this whole book, and the one thing you remember is he chewed scotch tape. I've done an okay job. That's yeah, and, and let, I want to be clear, because I, I have a feeling either Mr. Dalio or some of his people are probably watching this interview. Uh, wink, wink. Um, do you have a personal beef with him? Absolutely not. No. There's, I, have nothing, I have spent time with Ray Dalio. He's been very kind to me. My interest in this book is it's Ray Dalio through the looking glass. That's, that's what it is. Well, we're going to launch the Last Call book club tonight, but we didn't get the animation together. But, but you know what? We're going to call the fund... The first book in our semi-official, unofficial Last Call book club. How about that, Rob Coburn? Thank you very much. That, there you go. Uh, Ray, and you've been working on this for how long? For close to 10 years of my life. Wow. Well, um, congrats on the book and getting it out. It's a heck of an accomplishment. Rob Copeland, the fun. Thank you. Coming up, the post-IPO stocks that are giving a revealing pulse on the true state of tech. Next. All right, as the graphic uh, implies, we've got some breaking news. Reuters is reporting that the Screen Actors Guild Actors Union has reached a tentative deal to end their strike with the Hollywood studios. Now, we don't have any other details. We got a Reuters headline that the actors strike may have reached some kind of conclusion. Remember, the writers strike after about six months was solved a couple of weeks ago. That deal was done. SAG-AFTRA, which is the actor's part of the story, that is still ongoing. But according to Reuters, there is a tentative deal after 118 days to end that strike. If we get more information, of course, we will bring it to you. I'm sure Julia's making calls. And as you can see, get a little, got a little mojo in the, in the streaming and TV stocks, although Disney, their earnings a little better than expected. That stock up 3%. Again, more details if and when we get them. All right. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And I guess that could have been it. But we've also got other stuff going on. We've got a post-IPO earnings roundup with Instacart and semiconductor company Arm. Both companies went public in September. They just reported their quarterly results. 
Instacart beat expectations driven by strong sales. But after an initial pop, its stock is now down after hours off. But fractionally, one-tenth of one percent. Little more of a decline for Arm Holdings. That stock is down six and a half percent. They did beat on sales expectations, but revenue guidance. Remember, it's never about what you did. It's about what you're going to do. And investors don't like what they heard from ARM, Arm Holdings. All right, for more on this and the tech industry writ large, let's bring in Plexo Capital founding managing partner, Low Tony, based on the West Coast, schlepping out to the wilds of New Jersey, Low, <laughs> And we appreciate it. Um, you know, Instacart, Arm, how, how, how much do you look at and or invest in these recent IPOs? Do you care? So, yeah, you know, I think what we want to see and what everyone is looking for, especially within the private markets, is the ability for this IPO window to widen just a little bit more. There's such a backlog of companies that are in the queue that would like to exit. Now, first thing we should do is we should applaud these companies that have made it out. Even though some might say the earnings, the reports, the forecast might be a little disappointing, it's a Herculean task just yeah. to get into the public market. Well, if Instacart was a human, it would have been like an 84-year-old, right? <laughs> because it, it, it was around a long time before it went public. That's right. So was Arm, but Arm used to be public. Correct. Then they went private. Then they got bought a couple times. Now they've respun out. That's right. And what the analysts and bankers do when they're preparing these companies to go public is this is a well-orchestrated process looking out multiple quarters, thinking about precision around what is going to be reported and what's going to be forecast. Because as is well known on your end, it's not necessarily just getting through the window and mm-hmm. onto the exchange. It's also those first few earnings reports on the quarters after the IPO that are absolutely critical. And it's not just good just to meet. It has to be a nice beat. Well, I would imagine it's, it has everything to do with just confidence and management that That's are right. kind of being introduced to the investing public. That's right. And what needs to be established straight away in those first few quarters is the credibility that management can deliver what they said they were going to do. That's the past. But most importantly, to your point, what they're going to do in the future. And that's where I think, you know, we can look at some of these reports, ARM in particular, and that's where a little bit of the disappointment comes in. I think especially for ARM, when we think about all the excitement Mm -hmm. around AI and the performance that's required from these chips, you know, you kind of would expect that that would be a strong, positive look forward. Can't just buy everything on AI. Maybe Instacart will be an AI play at some point. Low Tony had to cut a little bit short because that breaking news, but we appreciate you coming out here. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks for having me. All right. Coming up, the fight for compensation by California fire victims five years later. Powerful story. Next. All right, welcome back. Five years ago today, Deadly wildfires in and around Paradise, California, killed 85 people and destroyed thousands of homes, one of the most destructive and dangerous fires in American history. Now, PG&E, the utility that services northern and central California, was found liable by the courts for the fire. It agreed to pay more than $18 billion to 70,000 victims through a fire victim trust. But to date, many people who have lost their homes have said they have still not been fully compensated. Two weeks ago, we flew to California to speak with one of these victims who lost her childhood home in the fire. What's your view on PG&E? I'm disgusted by them. You have a CEO who's collecting tens of millions of dollars. They want to increase our rates. And why? Well, so that they can 
continue doing what they're doing. Do you feel like PG&E maximized profit over safety? Absolutely. They do year over year. I mean, it's a publicly traded company, so I understand you have to make a profit. But at a certain point, where is it that you are actually doing what's right for the business, for the people? It's not the investors that we need to be worried about. It's all of us, the consumers that are paying for it, paying for it, not just with our money, but with our homes, with everything that we work hard to buy, to purchase, to have memories of, they're completely gone because PG&E is not maintaining what they should. Now, Michelle's family, actually one of the lucky ones. Both of her parents survived. They actually were at church when the fire began. If they weren't, they may have died. They had insurance on their home. They were able to rebuild without being dependent on the PG&E payouts. But many, many in paradise were either underinsured or uninsured. With only 57% of the claims paid out so far, according to the Fire Victims Trust, and because of high costs, the lack of money, labor shortages, inflation, rebuilding has simply not been possible for many. Now, PG&E is not the only utility accused of contributing to wildfire risks. Three months ago, today, deadly wildfires hit Lahaina, Maui. Now, to be clear, the exact cause of the fire has yet to be determined. But a lawsuit filed by Maui County alleges Hawaiian Electric was negligent in its maintenance of power lines, which the county says started the fire. Again, it's alleged a court will decide. But here's what Michelle had to say about what happened in Maui. What was it like watching the Maui fires? It brought back a lot of memories. I understood uh, th there were tears because I knew what those people were going through. Uh, to, to see it all happening again, it was it was devastating because you understood now as someone who lost everything. What would be your message to the Maui to the Maui victims in, in beginning this process of healing and rebuilding and also uh, trying to get what they are going to be likely owed if culpability is determined to be Hawaiian Electric? I would also say fight for it. That's why I'm here today to speak with you because I believe if we don't continue speaking up and shouting what's wrong, then nothing's going to change. We haven't seen things change in five years. Now, we reached out to PG&E regarding when they expect victims to be fully compensated. Remember, though, it is in the hands of the trust, not the utility. A company spokesperson said, quote, we remember and honor the victims of the campfire tragedy and are resolved to do everything in our power to make our system safe for our customers. PG&E prioritizes safety above all else. Our critical layers of wildfire protection work together to reduce wildfire ignition and strengthen our electric grid. These layers of protection have mitigated 90% of wildfire risk related to our company's equipment and are on track to mitigate 94% of the risk this year. Now, in response to the CEO pay part of that, they said this. The CEO's compensation in her first year, PG&E, included a one-time payment for compensation that she forfeited by leaving her previous company. This is among the ways companies attract leadership talent in a competitive market. So you're wondering where this came from. Well, our team, the reason I was in California a couple weeks ago, is continuing to look in to the risk between utilities, lack of maintenance, and the risk of deadly wildfires, whether that is in Northern California, five years ago today, Lahaina, Maui, Hawaii, or whenever. These are publicly traded companies. Are they properly assessing the risks that wildfires pose? And are they too concerned about growth and profit and not about safety and spending money on the things like cutting back old dead trees and bushes, invasive wildfire grasses in Maui, whatever it is, should they be spending more on that 
We're going to have kind of a mini documentary coming out in a few weeks on it. We hope to check it out. But we remember the victims of the Paradise Fire five years ago today. Thanks for watching Last Call. We will see you tomorrow night. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.